This is They Create Worlds, episode 34, The Nutting Associates. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today is nutting associates any old kind of nutting associate not my nutting associate maybe not your nutting associate but a nutting associate that was obviously made popularized and founded by nolan bushnell that's completely wrong yes but that's how a lot of people may think of it (laughs) sure nutting is a company that kind of gets a bit of a bad rap most people that are interested in kind of this history do realize that they released the very first commercial video game, Computer Space, which was created by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. A lot of people don't realize, though, that there was more to the company and that it was actually a bit more of an innovative company than a lot of people actually know, and that there's a lot of history before that video game and a tiny amount of history after that video game that's worth covering as well. Yeah, as I said in the beginning there, a lot of people sort of really high nutting associates to Nolan Bushnell because of computer space, at least from my poking around and understanding of it. And from what I've heard anecdotally through you, just sort of the sense you get is that nutting associates were sort of like made by Nolan Bushnell. And after he went on to bigger and better things, it fell off after them. And from what you're telling me here is that's not really the case. Right, because it's often portrayed as this kind of bumbling company, and Bill Nutting, the founder, is portrayed as kind of this bumbling guy who kind of ended up in a coin-op business that he never really understood and never knew what to do with and kind of lucked out that Nolan Bushnell came to him with computer space and that gave him something to work with. And as with any story like that, there is a little bit of truth there. I mean, the story we're going to tell today is not going to be the story of the magnificently brilliant Bill Nutting, who saw the entire future of the arcade industry and brought everyone to new heights of glory, either. <laughs> it's just that the truth is somewhere in between those kind of two extremes. And the the story that's been kind of built around Nolan Bushnell's and, to a lesser extent, Ted Dabney's memories of the company does a little bit of disservice to what was actually going on there. All right, that makes sense. So starting from the beginning, you have Bill Nutting. What went through his mind in order to go, you know, I'm going to take my last name, throw this associate's name on it, and make a company? Sure. So Bill Nutting is from the Chicago area, and uh, was a pretty well-off guy. His family was definitely upper, upper middle class. Both his father and his grandfather were high-level executives at the Marshall Fields Department Store which back in the day was a big deal in Chicago, not so much anymore. But what department store is anymore? I think Sears, at the time of this recording, has just announced they're closing another 150-odd stores around the country. So, And we all know how big Sears was back in the day. (laughs) Exactly, which has been mentioned several times on this very podcast. It may have. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So he came from money, is the thing. He was one of, uh, I believe, five children, uh, one of whom will 
also be playing a role in the story besides him. He came of age during World War II, graduated from high school in 1944, and enlisted uh, in pilot training uh, with the Army Air Corps. Didn't actually see service before the, the war ended, but he'd always loved flying. I don't know where his love of flying originated. I do know that he was part of the aviation club at his high school just because one of his yearbooks mentions that. So we know that his love of flying at least goes back to his teenage years. So it's not an accident that he was going to try to join the Army Air Corps. Unfortunately, I should interject to this point, Bill Nutting was never really interviewed uh, for a historical retrospective kind of thing. He died in 2008, so he's no longer with us. The only interview that I know of that was in any way historical is one that he gave uh, for the book Video Invaders, which was released in 1982. It was kind of the first book that tried to do any kind of history of the video game industry. Mm -hmm. it, it was in no way comprehensive, and it had some other stuff in it. It wasn't just history. It was also talking about some of the current hot games and strategies for the current hot games. So it was kind of this hybrid book, but it's the only book of any kind or source of any kind that includes any quotes from Bill Nutting. And it only includes a couple. So for all intents and purposes, he was never interviewed before he passed, unfortunately. So all that we have comes from profiles from way back in the day or recollections of other people and, and stuff like that. There's no way to get any kind of actual from the horse's mouth. Sure. We're, we're hoping, myself and Ethan Johnson, who we've mentioned several times recently on this program, just because he's been doing a lot of research, are hoping to track down some depositions that he gave back in the 1970s in some of the Magnavox patent lawsuits. They may not exist anymore. Court records that old often get destroyed, but he's in the process at, at the time of this recording. By the time this airs, we'll probably actually know whether he was successful or not. Uh, he's in the process of trying to see if those records are still lurking somewhere in, in the National Archive system. Mm -hmm. uh, because... Uh, barring finding something like that, a deposition or something, there's there's never going to be uh, a record from Bill Nutting himself describing any of what he did in this industry. He does pilot training, and he's he's big into aviation, which is something that will come into play later. After the war ends, he, he goes off to college. Uh, I think he starts out in a college kind of local, but then he moves uh, to Colorado to finish his last two years of college, where a childhood friend of his is also in college. I don't know if he moved to that college because he and Claire Ullman were already becoming romantically involved. Again, I don't know the family history, but they do end up going to school together out in Colorado, and they do end up getting married, which is also important to the story, which is why I bring it up. Once he gets through school and he gets a, a degree in business, so he is a guy with a business background. A lot of people talk about how he had no idea what he was doing running a company, and it may be that he didn't have a great idea of what he was doing running a coin-operated games company. I don't know. But he did have a background in business. It's not like he was just random guy that was like, I think I'll start a company now. <laughs> he did, right. he did he, have he a business degree. He went to college and got the knowledge he needed to do business, whether or not he would ever able to properly apply that knowledge is hearsay, but he at least had the knowledge presented to him professionally trained. Sure. And he had a lot of experience. Uh, once he got out of school, he moved to California. He was briefly with a ball bearing company. And then he spent a lot of years with a company called Ream Manufacturing. And he was involved kind of in all aspects. He was involved in sales. He was involved in purchasing. Uh, he did supervision work on the line. I mean, he was involved in a lot of different roles over his years at Ream Manufacturing. 
And he started uh, out there in San Francisco in uh, the area that became Silicon Valley is where he started with them. Then he actually transferred back to uh, the Chicago area uh, because they had a branch office there, and he became the, the office manager, the guy actually running their office in the Chicago area. Did that for a couple of years. Then in 1959, though, he went back to San Francisco, and he decided to follow in his uh, forebears' footsteps and actually get involved in the retail business. I don't know. It could be that there was family pressure to do that. Uh, his brother Dave, who is going to play a role in this story, uh, he wrote uh, an autobiographical book. It's it's kind of a combination inspirational book, autobiographical book, so it's not it doesn't spell out his entire life in, in intimate detail, but there are portions of his life story in it. And and Dave said that there was a lot of pressure on him to enter the family business, to get involved in, in retail and department stores. And by uh, association, obviously, Bill would have to have the same pressure as well, you would, I would think. I would think so. That's exactly right. So for whatever reason... Bill does move back to San Francisco in 1959, leaves remanufacturing, and goes to work for the Raphael uh, Wild Department Store, which was a very famous department store in San Francisco. I don't know that it ever became a chain, but uh, it was known as the White House because it had a very impressive, gleaming white Beaux-Arts facade. And so this was, this was a very big deal, a very top-notch, high-class department store in San Francisco. And he became a buyer for the store, I believe, in the gloves department. He did that for a couple of years. And then in 1962, he got involved with a brand new company called edX, or edX. I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. This was a company, it stood for Educational Excellence, or Excellence in Education. It's often said that it stood for Excellence in Education, but if it's E-D-E-X, Educational Excellence, it seems would make more sense. Right. But whatever reason, it's whatever it is, excellence in education, educational excellence, it's meant to be an education company. It's a technology company. It's founded by Eugene Kleiner, who was one of the eight founders of Fairchild Semiconductor, the so-called traitorous eight that had worked for William Shockley, a Nobel Prize winning co-inventor of the transistor, and then spun off and created Fairchild Semiconductor when they decided that Shockley was an egotistical controlling maniac and uh, wanted to work for themselves. And Fairchild Semiconductor is really the company that birthed so much of Silicon Valley because of all the spinoffs, because Intel was a spinoff of Fairchild Semiconductor. Mm. AMD was a spinoff of Fairchild Semiconductor. National Semiconductor was not a spinoff because it had been founded a few years earlier in Connecticut, but it was a Fairchild employee, Charlie Spork, that took over the company that was in Connecticut and moved it to California. So in a way, National Semiconductor is also a Fairchild spinoff. So so many of the companies in the Valley are either spinoffs of Fairchild or spinoffs of spinoffs of Fairchild. So really, they're the germination standpoint for Silicon Valley. Sure. And in, in the aspect of Silicon Valley being involved in, in transistors, mm -hmm. there are many different dates thrown around for Silicon Valley. I mean, kind of the founding of Hewlett Packard, which goes back to the 30s, is another event that is given as kind of symbolic founding of Silicon Valley uh, in terms of being a, a high technology hub. But yeah, Fairchild is the company certainly that put the silicon mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley, even though there were other forces that helped make it a technology hub as well. 
So Eugene Kleiner is a big deal, and then he later becomes a big-time venture capitalist as well. Kleiner Perkins is one of the most well-known and prestigious venture capital firms even still today in the Silicon Valley area, and Eugene Kleiner and Tom Perkins were the founders of that. But in between Fairchild and Kleiner Perkins, Kleiner founded this company called edX, or edX, that was focused on creating these kind of teaching machines, so using technology for kind of machine-aided instruction mm. kind of idea. EDEX had a product that they were developing for the Navy that was a film strip quiz kind of product. So there would be questions with multiple choice answers on a film strip, and then you would press the button next to the correct answer. So it was a training kind of program that was meant to be a little more interactive and a little more interesting to hold the attention of the people being trained, mm -hmm. pretty much. And as a sideline, the company decided to create a coin-operated version of it. And, and I don't know why. I don't know what the, the genesis of that is. In the Atari book, Atari Business is Fun, um, Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vendell's book, they put it down to there being kind of a conversation between some of the investors in the company, and Bill Nutting's one of the, one of the financial investors in this company, that they were joking that, hey, if you put a coin slot on this, this might you know, be really big. And Bill Nutting was like, yeah, if you put a coin slot on it, it might be really big. That sounds like a good idea. I, I honestly don't know where they got that from. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously, they didn't get it from Bill Nutting directly, though they, they talked to a lot of people, so they might have gotten it from somebody. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that it looks like this was something EDEX was planning to do separate from Bill Nutting all along, because there is a patent for this technology. And, and it's owned, presumably, by EDEX. Yeah, so at least it was originally owned by EDEX. Uh, it looks like Bill Nutting probably had the patents assigned to him later in the story. But yes, it's an EDEX patent. EDEX was the original assignee. The patent dates to January of 1964. That's when it was filed. It was, I don't think it was issued until something like 1967, but it was filed in 19, January 1964, which means that the work on the machine must have been done in 1963, the bulk of the work. And already that machine was, from the very beginning, it was a coin-operated machine because that patent is for a quiz apparatus, a knowledge apparatus, that has a coin slot and is meant to be a coin-operated product. So while it was certainly a sideline from kind of their main business, it doesn't sound like it's something that a couple of employees or a couple of investors went off and did on the side on a whim. It sounds like something that the, the main EDEX company was interested in doing. It was almost like a skunk work they had going on where they wanted to go, this might work, let's throw some money at it and see if we could get something to work. Sure. So I don't know exactly why they went this route, but, but they did. Edix decided to make this uh, into a coin-operated machine, and they called that machine the knowledge computer. Now, it wasn't really a computer in the way that we would understand that today. It's just computer had a nice futuristic ring to it. I mean, it's not even a, a state machine like, like a computer space is with the TTL hardware. This is a machine that uses electromechanical relays, and the questions are stored on film strip, and there's some electromechanical technology to 
operate the the projector and the buttons and all of that apparatus that makes the whole machine work. It's not actually a computer. <laughs> There's not a computer in there. But they call it the knowledge computer. They patented it in early 64. And Bill Nutting, who definitely seems to be taken by this machine, Bill Nutting takes responsibility for actually marketing the knowledge computer. He becomes, uh, I don't know if he was already an Edix employee or not, because, you know, sources talk about him investing in the company, but I don't know if he was more than just an investor. But at this point, he definitely becomes an employee, because if you look at, he was living in Menlo Park, California at the time, if you look at Menlo Park city directories of the time, which give his name, his address, and, and his profession, he's listed as an Edex salesman. So hmm. he is, at this point, working for Edex to be uh, selling this knowledge computer. Hmm. We only have snatches of information on it. For the longest time, it was kind of assumed that the knowledge computer never went anywhere and that after a few years, Bill Nutting kind of took the technology and, and turned it into Computer Quiz, the game he released at Nutting Associates. But the fact of the matter is, once you get back into some of those old trade publications, they were putting some effort in it. By the middle of 1964, there's an article in Cashbox that proclaims that there are already several machines on location in places like college dorms and bowling alleys, kind of semi-non-traditional venues for games, because they recognize that since there's this kind of educational quality to it, it can get into other areas besides just bars and inner-city arcades, because it doesn't feel as sinister as a pinball machine. Right, and it's a quiz game. You can, have, you can almost make it family fun time with that. Mm -hmm. You can see that now with modern versions of quiz games. Oh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of them where you can have things set up so that everyone puts their answer on their phone and then there's some sort of controlling thing on a PS4 or the like, and that shows the question, and then you select your answer. Oh, yeah. Well, and even in arcades. I mean, I have not been in a Dave & Buster's in a long time, but I remember back in the probably mid-2000s, you know, I was in a, a Dave & Buster's, and there was a very big uh, trivia game apparatus there in, in that arcade as well. So this, this concept is still alive and well, even in arcades, <laughs> that was pioneered by this knowledge computer. Yeah, it's certainly a popular thing that's out there. It's one of those kind of games that's almost timeless. Sure. They're actually starting to market this and actually sell this game in mid-1964, and they bring it to the MOA show, which we've talked about before, the main trade show of the arcade industry, in late 1964, under the name Scientific Amusements, which is a subsidiary that's formed by Edict specifically to market this. They had a private showing of it in 1963, where they didn't have a full booth at the show, but ACA Sales, which was a major distributor on the West Coast, did some private showings of the game in their booth. So 1963, 1964, they are getting the word out there, and they get a few units out there. Then in 1965, Nutting starts apparently marketing it himself. Again, there's only very small snippets in trade publications, so some of the story is kind of difficult to suss out. But in 1965, Edex is bought by Raytheon, major, major defense contractor with hands and all sorts of technology pies. Apparently, Raytheon wasn't 
really that enamored with this kind of coin-op side business going on. So they're not interested in kind of continuing this experiment further. But Bill Nutting is very sold on this idea. So Nutting at this point is fully committed to the coin-op industry, and I'd love to know why. This is one of the things you wish you could ask Bill Nutting now, because here's a guy that's been in manufacturing, he's been in retail, and now he's decided that he wants to be in the coin-op business, which is not something that most people end up deciding to do. I mean, even, no, no. even by the, the 1960s, the business really, as we discussed before, you know, really took root in the 1930s in the Great Depression. And by the 1970s, I mean, this is very family-run stuff. Most of the people involved in coin-op in the 1960s and 1970s, pre-video, are either the same people that were involved in the 30s or the sons or grandsons of people that were involved in the 1930s. I right. Mean, it's, it's a business that's really hard to break into, and the fact that he was even able to do it to the degree he was speaks volumes to his business acumen in order to do that. Right. I mean, he understood that he had a product that had a chance to make a unique impact, and he's not a technical guy, and he's not a coin-op guy, so he could never himself create such a product, but he understood that this knowledge computer that he had was something that could be very interesting. And so he decided to break into this very close-knit, tight, impenetrable arcade industry and manages to carve a small toehold for himself, even though he's out here in California and the entire industry, more or less, is headquartered in Chicago in terms of the manufacturers. Obviously, there are distributors all over the country, but the manufacturing's all in Chicago, but he's doing it here in California, in the Bay Area. So in 1965, Nutting takes over the sale of the machine himself, apparently. Uh, I say apparently because there's no, there's no big headline that says this. There's no interview that says this. It's just that suddenly in, in 1965, in October, in Billboard magazine, there's a notice that says that Nutting Corporation is manufacturing the knowledge computer. And it's being handled by Advanced Automatic Sales. That's a major distributor in San Francisco. And that several dozen units are already on location. So now we've got this Nutting Corporation thing. Whatever that is. Have no idea when it was founded, what it was. We know that Nutting Associates was incorporated in February of 1967. So there's no paperwork? I would think that if you're distributing things, there had to be some sort of, like, business paperwork somewhere. Well, but there's nothing that would necessarily have to be on file with anybody. He, cre he incorporated Nutting Associates in February 1967. So there's a record of that, because there's documents of incorporation filed with the Secretary of State's office. You don't have to file anything with the Secretary of State's office if you're not a a corporation like that. Okay. Obviously, if you have a group of partners doing something, you have to have a partnership agreement amongst yourselves, you know, figuring out who owns what part of the business. But that's not something that you then have to file with the Secretary of State's office. I would think you would have to, if you are distributing things and actually selling stuff, you have to have some sort of business license. But it wouldn't be something that would still be on file anywhere today. Okay. It's so not it something might be one that of would be maintained, that... you know. Okay. So it might be one of the things sort of like the 
court documents were past a certain time period, all the documentation of it could have been destroyed. Exactly. Because it's not, it's not a corporation at this point. Okay. Bill Nutting does not establish a corporation until February of 1967. So the business he had beforehand would be word of mouth. Right. He's just got, he's, he's got a sole proprietorship or he's got a partnership or something, but it's not a corporation. So they're not corporate documents right. that have survived. But it's still enough of a business where he may have sent in paperwork in order to do the business side of things. But because of however the legal ramblings is, that paperwork disappeared, gone, or just not preserved. Right. This Nutting Corporation is never mentioned again in any other source. Sometimes the trades get things a little bit wrong when they report, especially on obscure things. There'll be typos or slight errors or whatnot. I wouldn't be surprised if this Nutting Corporation is actually an early version of Nutting Associates. It might not actually be called Nutting Corporation. It might be Nutting Associates. Hmm. Unincorporated, obviously. But you can have a company before you're incorporated. I mean, Syzygy, which was the partnership between Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. I mean, there's no partnership records of that. I mean, that's just something that they came up with themselves, and then they incorporated it as Atari in 1972. But they would have incorporated it as Syzygy in 1972 if that name had been available. It's just the name wasn't available. The fact that it didn't incorporate until 1967 doesn't mean it couldn't have existed before 1967. So we could have had Nutting Associates beforehand, and then that's when it became a full-fledged company. At a full-fledged corporation. Full-fledged it's it's corporation. still a company. Right. A full-fledged corporation in 67. Right. So in 1965, he is selling this machine, this knowledge computer, and there are a few dozen, at least, out on location. It very quickly becomes apparent it is a terribly bad coin-operated game. The technology is very clunky. It breaks down a lot. It's very expensive to manufacture. It was created at a defense contractor. It wasn't created at a coin-operated games company that would understand how you have to build something like this so it makes sense in the field. Mm -hmm. So it quickly becomes apparent that the knowledge computer isn't going to fly in its current state, and he has to get the darn thing redesigned. And he's not a technical person, as I said, so he turns to his brother Dave to help him with this. Dave Nutting is in Milwaukee at this time. He's an industrial designer, so he's not an electrical engineer himself either, or a mechanical engineer. He's an industrial designer. He designs the look and feel of things more so than the actual nuts and bolts circuitry. But still, he's a guy that understands design and who knows people who also know the more technical things. Dave Nutting designed a couple of interesting things. He designed the Jeep Grand Wagoneer, which is considered the first SUV. Designed that back in the 60s. So he has some cred in that business. So Bill comes to Dave and says, I've got this product. I think it'd be really cool, but it needs a complete redesign. So Dave agrees to come on board and, and help with that, and then he enlists a friend of his that works at a company called Cutler Hammer named Harold Montgomery, who can do kind of more of the technical side of this redesign. You understand the electromechanical end. Exactly. So Harold Montgomery redesigns the machine, so instead of 
basic electrical mechanical relays, he redesigns it so that it is plug-in relays on a circuit board. So at this point, the machine is not in any way fully solid state, but there is a circuit board now with relays that plug into that circuit board. So that makes the technology more reliable than, than the old relays that are in it. And they also rebuild the projector from scratch. Dave Nutting kind of takes charge of that, enlists a local company to help rebuild the projector. They're going to do the manufacturing of this product in Milwaukee, because that's where Dave is. Mm -hmm. And it's also closer to Chicago, the heart of the industry. Bill's going to stay in California, and he's going to be the main guy in charge of marketing it, particularly on the West Coast. That's all great until Bill's wife, Claire, objects to the whole arrangement. She's hmm. not happy. And again, don't know why. Yeah. But enough different people have told this story. I mean, the only ones that probably really know for sure are Bill and Dave. And Dave has been interviewed. Dave Nutting's been interviewed several times. And, and that's the story he tells. Both Harold Montgomery and another associate of Dave's, Gene Wagner, have both recently been interviewed by Ethan again. Both of them in that interview said that that was their understanding at the time, too. Obviously, they weren't directly involved. Right. But it was their understanding at the time. So it's not just a story that's been made up 20 or 30 years after the fact. Did anyone try to talk to Claire and say, hey, why do you object? No, that, that seems like it would be a bit rude, doesn't it? <laughs> a little rude, but... It... No, no, no one's interviewed her. I think she's still alive. I mean, she's up there, too. I mean, these are, these are old people now <laughs> mm -hmm. in their 80s and whatnot. 80s or older. Claire objects to the brothers going into business together and really forces Bill to call the whole thing off. And, and Bill does. He calls the whole thing off. He says, Dave, I can't work with you on this. <laughs> now you have the business guy who had the idea, who no longer has a machine, and the designers that have the machine, but no longer have the business guy. Mm -hmm. And so you get a schism here. They both go off and do their own things. Bill Nutting continues with his Nutting Associates and finds a local company called Marketing Services to help him redesign the machine. So the, the work that Dave's done, that's Dave's now. It's not Bill's. Bill is back to his same old clunky knowledge computer that doesn't work very well that he had before. He goes to a company called Marketing Services, who assigns him an industrial designer named Richard Ball whom I've interviewed, Richard Ball does the redesign thing all over again, and he does some of the same things. He rebuilds the projector, just like Dave Nutting did. He goes to plug in relays on the board, just like Dave Nutting did, and comes up with a machine that is very similar to what Dave had done initially for, for Bill. So they move forward with that machine, Computer Quiz, and... At the same time, Dave and Harold Montgomery and Gene Wagner move forward with their version of the machine, which they call IQ Computer. And they're very similar to each other. They're not identical, but they're very similar to each other. And they both hit the market at about the same time in late 1967. Mm. I have been avoiding dates through a lot of this process here. And the reason for that is that the dates on this are unfortunately still very unclear. There's a combination of personal recollection and scant corporate documentation and a few other 
sources of various clues that help set some of the timeline, but some of these some of these pieces of information are even a little contradictory from each other. And a lot of it boils down to hearsay. Right. So Gene Wagner has claimed uh, not just to Ethan Johnson, but also in a much, much earlier interview in uh, Replay or Play Meter, I always forget, I get them mixed up, uh, way back in 1980, that he first met Dave Nutting and first saw the, the knowledge computer in 1963. He's probably got the date wrong on that. 1963 is way too early for Dave to be involved in any way, shape, or form. And 1963 seems like it'd be too early to see the Knowledge Computer, too. The Knowledge Computer was shown in a private showing at the 1963 MOA by ACA Sales. But its real debut was in 1964. It was not in 1963. Gene Wagner would have certainly seen it at an MOA show because at that time he was a distributor in Michigan. So he was in the coin-op industry. But he probably didn't see it till 1964. Dave, uh, as far as I know, I haven't interviewed Dave, but like I said, he has been interviewed a few times. Dave says that he got involved in, in 66. 66 makes a lot of sense for Dave to be involved because we know that Bill was saw- selling the knowledge computer in 1965. So 1966 kind of makes sense as kind of the transition from the knowledge computer to computer quiz. We know that the machines debuted in 1967. The computer quiz and IQ computer debuted in 1967. There's ample documentation of their presence at trade shows and and all of that stuff in the trade publications. So the confusion becomes, when was computer quiz designed and when did the split between the brothers occur? There's an article in Cashbox, the major trade in the 60s for the coin-op industry, in August that announces the completion of Computer Quiz. It has a picture of Computer Quiz, but it makes reference to nutting manufacturing, which is something that, as far as I know, never existed. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's never mentioned anywhere else. And all of the principles that are discussed in the article are actually principles that are involved with the Dave nutting side of things. It's Gene Wagner's company. It's uh, Joe Maurice, who is somebody who's associated with Gene Wagner. It's all people involved with that side. But it's talking about computer quiz, which is the bill game. But there's a picture of the game in the article. And in the picture, the game is clearly labeled computer quiz, but it's very clearly Dave's design because the buttons are in different places for selecting answers and whatnot. The buttons are in different places on Bill's game and Dave's game. So from the design of the, of the console, it is clearly Dave's game, but it's labeled Computer Quiz, which is Bill's game. So obviously this, they had no clue what, who they were covering or how they were covering this, or they were conflating both of them. Well, there was probably a, a piece of that, but the thing is that picture didn't come out of nowhere. Cashbox didn't create that picture. There is clearly a IQ computer unit mm-hmm. that says Computer Quiz on it. And that has nothing to do with with how Cashbox covered it, because... And that's an actual physical computer. It's not sort of like some sort of mock-up or something, right? Well, you don't know whether it's a mock-up or not, because it's just a picture. You can't tell. I mean, Mm. it's not a drawing. I mean, it looks like it's... But, of course, it could just be a mock-up. But the point is, that computer quiz name is being attached, you know, to the Dave Nutting device. 
So does that mean that they were still in partnership with each other as late as August of 67 or or maybe July of 67? Because sometimes these articles have a bit of lead time, obviously. Does that mean that they were still in cahoots as late as July of 1967? Or is this whole thing just a confusion? And that's that's what we don't know. We do know that Computer Quiz was trademarked by Bill in March of 1966. When you do a trademark, you have a filing date, but you also have your first use in commerce date. So the first use in commerce date was in January of 66. That implies that something like computer space existed as far back as January 1966, which really seems early. I mean, it's a registered trademark with the United States government. So, I mean, it happened. It's right. not a mistake. Bill Nutting filed a trademark for Computer Quiz in early 1966. So there has to be something that he put out there unless he put out fraudulent documents or something. Right, which I doubt he did. I mean, he registered the mark. Now, and he used the mark in commerce. Now, the first date you use a mark in commerce is not necessarily the first date that something is available. At this point, is he just reserving the name and reserving the concept and is starting to shop the concept around but doesn't actually have a product yet? That would seem to make some sense. On the other hand, there's a profile of Bill Nutting in February 1968 in Cashbox. And in that profile, he said that his company test-marketed Computer Quiz for a full year before taking it to the MOA show in 1967 to actually start selling through distributors. So having that come out in 66 makes sense if you're testing it for a full year. Exactly, but it doesn't make sense in terms of the split between the brothers. Because if they already had built something in 1966, in the very beginning of 1966, and we're already putting units out on the market, why would it take all the way till 1967, late 1967, for Dave Nutting to release IQ Computer? Because according to Harold Montgomery in his interview with Ethan Johnson, he says that they never built a computer space game, or sorry, computer quiz game at Nutting Industries, which was Dave's company. And Gene Wagner, I think it's in the Gene Wagner interview where he says that the whole thing was called off when they already had about 100 units ready to go, but they hadn't put anything in the field yet. Presumably, if Bill Nutting was putting out computer quiz games in early 1966, the split must have already happened by that point. But if the split had already happened by that point, why wouldn't... Nutting Industries be ready to jump into the market immediately because they were already starting to manufacture their first test product when the deal was called off. So it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it really doesn't make any sense. Right. Now, is Bill being cute? I mean, we just have Bill Nutting's word that they were testing product in for a year before 1967. There's nothing in the trade magazines to indicate that. Could he be describing knowledge computers? Could he be counting the knowledge computers that he already had in the field as his initial test product of the concept? Mm -hmm. 
Maybe. I Possible. mean, he might be. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's kind of a mess because you have this one timeline with the trademark application and the profile in Cashbox that seems to imply that they were making machines in 1966 and then went into full production or whatever in 1967. But then you have this second timeline, which is the recollections of the Nutting Industries people and the computer quiz announcement with all the Nutting Industries information in August 1967 that posits a different scenario, which is that the split maybe didn't happen until 1967 Mm -hmm. and that this was a kind of last minute break right before they were about ready to go to market. And then they both came to the MOA show separately as as Nutting Associates and IQ Computer Company, which is what Dave's outfit called themselves at that first MOA show before they started calling themselves Nutting Industries. So I don't know how to reconcile those two things. I mean, right now, I can't. And this, this may be a little bit too how the sausage gets made on, on historical research. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I can't make sense of those two things at this point. I tend to believe that a 1967 split, early 1967 split, is more logical. We know that Richard Ball, who was brought in again, he was brought in after Dave. I know this because I interviewed Richard Ball, and he never had anything to do with Dave. In fact, when I interviewed him, he talked about how Dave had knocked off Bill's concept when he created his IQ computer, which is not exactly true, because, of course, Dave had been building it for Bill. Mm-hmm. But see, Richard Ball knew nothing about that. So he definitely came in post-split mm-hmm. because he knows nothing about Bill and Dave's partnership. We know that at least by early 1967, he was at Nutting Associates because, again, I looked in old city directories, and the 1967 city directory for his hometown at the time, Palo Alto, He's, his occupation is listed as Nutting Designer. So he's at Nutting Associates by the time the 1967 city directory comes out, which is going to be really early in the year. So that implies that he was there in 67, says he's definitely there in 67, but it implies he may have even been there in late 1966. Mm-hmm. So that would seem to imply a 1966 split, because obviously if you're releasing a city directory in 1967, you're collecting the information you know, right. a bit before that. The 1966 city directory lists him as being at Marketing Services, which is the company that he was working at before Bill tapped him to do that knowledge computer redesign. So there's a part of me that says a 1967 split makes sense because you've got that August article where it seems like they were still in cahoots until kind of recently, and you also have the fact that both Nutting Associates and IQ Computer Corporation are last-minute additions to the MOA show in 1967. They weren't included in the first list of exhibitors that was put out by Cashbox. They were only listed a, a week or two later, which implies that they were figuring out still who they were and what they wanted to do, which, which implies a kind of recent split. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Richard Ball side of it makes it seem like it may have been you know, kind of at the end of 66 that it happened. So could, that, could that's have been a mess. that <laughs> they split in 66 and they, for whatever reason, hey, we're brothers. I'll, I'll keep this silent from my wife for a little bit as we clean up this split here. But 
were like sort of pseudo working together and then fully splitting over the course of a half a year or I, so? Well, or? I don't I don't think so, because Richard Ball had no idea that Dave Nutting was ever involved with anything. That's true. But I'm saying that But like, he's an employee of the company at this point. <laughs> if Dave Nutting were involved, he would know. It's a small company. Okay, so <laughs> It's a hard one, and one we definitely have to get some input from the people involved. Well, I, we have, and as, as much as we possibly can. Right, right, right. It's just there's... We, we need some seances. There's, right. It's just, just that there's some contradictory information. I think that 67 August article has got to be an outlier. It's possible that Dave Nutting had planned to go forward with the computer quiz name, and then, you know, eventually realized he couldn't because... Bill did have it trademarked. Dave could not use the computer space name because it was a trademark owned by Nutting Associates. Mm -hmm. So it may be that the reason that that mock-up still says computer quiz is at that time, Dave was still planning to call his computer quiz and then realized he couldn't. <laughs> I, I don't know. Right. I, I do think that... It's a cluster. Look, at the end of the day, does it really matter that much to the grand scheme of arcade and video game history? No. no. So uh, we're probably getting kind of in the weeds here a little bit. But it just kind of goes to show, if there's anything to take away from that, it's that part of the reason that Nutting's legacy is not very well known is because there are very few sources, and even those sources don't seem to get the whole story right. So I guess right. that's the lesson we can take away from that extended and look. history is more murky and ambiguous than textbooks and your history teacher may lead on. Research is hard, people. I mean, these are events that happened 40 years ago. 40 years ago, and, and already so much of it is lost. You can only imagine the nightmare of 100 years ago. Yeah. Well, 50 years ago, I guess, for this stuff, because we're talking the 60s. <laughs> but True, we're older still, now. But 50 years ago, it's already this loss. So, you know, the poor people that are trying to figure out what happened, you know, two or 300 years ago. <laughs> I mean, jeez. For whatever reason, the brothers split, and you have these two quiz machines, and they both come out at about the same time at the very end of 1967. You have Computer Quiz from Nutting Associates and IQ Computer from Nutting Industries. They take the coin-op world by storm. I mean, they're really successful. Each of them sells over 3,000 units at a time when a pinball machine is considered a hit if it breaks 1,500. And so between the two of them, you know, they're, they're selling, uh, you know, 7,000 or so units, which is a great number. Unheard of at the time, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, not completely. Yeah, sure. Not completely unheard of, but very rare. It becomes an entree into new locations. They both really push into non-traditional venues. They push into bowling alleys, which do kind of have some games some kind, sometimes already. But they push into college campuses, which often would not host pinball machines in student unions and whatnot because of that kind of gambling stigma. They pushed into department stores. They pushed into large apartment buildings that would have common rooms in them. These are the kind of places that would not accept a pinball machine because of that real organized crime and gambling stigma that had been attached to it over the years. A fairly unfair stigma, but a stigma that was there nonetheless. So these machines were getting into new locations. And then once the location owner realized this thing was making money for them, then 
suddenly those other games didn't look quite so bad anymore either. I like money. <laughs> That's right. So now these games are serving as gateways for other games, particularly after the realistic or audiovisual games that we've talked about before started appearing. Games like Sega's Periscope and Chicago Coins Speedway, because these are also games that don't quite have the same stigma as a pinball machine. And these are also games that are bringing in a lot of money because they're new and novel. And so suddenly you're getting arcade games showing up in unexpected places you didn't see them before. And this doesn't cause a complete revolution or anything. Your bar and your arcade, your inner city arcade, not there are no shopping mall arcades really at this time. We're talking about inner city locations. Your working class bar and your inner city arcade are still going to be your primary places where these units are going in. But you're starting to get that little crack. You're starting to get a little more respectability. And the video game really builds on that. The video game becomes even more respectable. It's really aided by these quiz games and these audiovisual games coming in first. And so Bill Nutting is responsible in large part for a very real transformation in the industry. Him and Dave. You have to give Dave's crew credit as well, obviously, because they're both marketing at the same time. The problem, though, becomes what next? It always is. Sort of like this. I mean, we just got done doing this episode. I came out on the first. The next one. What's the next big hit? It's always how it is in technology. And neither group really have really great technical people. Bill Nutting, business guy. Richard Ball is an industrial designer. So he's not the technical guy. When it came time to make that circuit board for the plug-in relays, he went to another company that actually made the circuit board for them. You know, Dave Nutting, he's an industrial designer. He can't really do this stuff himself either. They mostly end up, for the first year or so, just continuing to perpetuate that quiz game thing. They release new question packs. They release the two-player version. Ooh. They go solid state, and that's, that's very interesting because in 1968, October, Nutting Associates goes fully solid state, gets rid of the relays altogether. Richard Ball's the guy that is the driving force behind that in terms of deciding to do it, though he's not the technical guy. They actually have uh, an intern at the time that is a friend of one of Bill Nutting's sons who has a knack for this solid state circuitry stuff. And so they work with him, and then they work with the same company that made the uh, plug-in relay circuit board, and they come up with a fully solid-state circuit board, a, a PCB, and get rid of the relays altogether. And this is probably the very first solid-state arcade game ever made. I can't say that 100% conclusively, but it probably is. 80-90% chance. Which uh, is a big deal. I mean, obviously, solid-state is what drives the whole industry forward in the 70s and 80s. Video games are a solid-state product, and pinball goes solid-state in the mid-70s and reaps all sorts of benefits from it. So that move to solid-state is a big deal. And the quiz games also pioneer quarter play. At first, computer quiz is not a straight quarter play game. It's like three plays for a quarter or something like that. IQ Computer actually goes 
straight quarter plays in one game, one quarter, very early, maybe even from the very beginning. So it kind of pioneers straight quarter play. Computer Quiz is also helping to ease the industry into quarter play. And then again, those audiovisual games pick up from there and go full quarter play, and then video games go full quarter play. Nutting is a big part of getting arcade games in non-traditional venues. He's a big part of getting arcade games to solid state, and he's a big part of getting arcade games to quarter play. That's not bad for a bumbling guy that really has no idea what he's doing in the coin-op industry. That sounds more like a bumbling guy who knows what he's doing in his coin-op industry. Well, he knows a little, but he doesn't know what to do next, Mm -hmm. right? So he's not a great visionary when it comes to product. He recognized the computer quiz could be an interesting product, that that knowledge computer could be turned into something. But that was something created by somebody else. He didn't know necessarily where to go next, and so the company is spinning its wheels after a couple of years. It really has no idea what to do. Nutting Industries does a little better. They kind of transition that film strip technology into traditional arcade games. So they get some shooting games going with film strip technology and whatnot. Bill tries a couple of games. There's a a light guessing game. Uh, There's a horoscope machine. I mean, he's trying, but he can't get anything else going. And he also has this tendency to alienate his workers which is also bad. Mm -hmm. Bill was more kind of the money man. He didn't want to be a day-to-day business runner. He was more of the big picture, you know, money man kind of guy. Not big picture in terms of visionary. Bill very quickly hires a guy named Ransom White to be his VP of sales and marketing and then later makes him his executive vice president. Ransom White was an MBA student at Stanford when Nutting was starting to test mark a computer quiz in the area, and Ransom White actually ran a few of those machines as an operator in the Palo Alto area while he was finishing up his degree. And then he came on board to be the VP of Sales and Marketing uh, after he graduated. And so he was kind of running things more day-to-day, and you had Richard Ball doing kind of the design on things. And then Bill Nutting buys an antique airplane because he's really into flying. Mm -hmm. And he apparently does it with company money. Uh, Now, I I don't mean to imply that he did anything illegal. I assume he didn't. But Ransom White and Richard Ball felt that that money should be invested in the company and not spent on airplanes for the owner. Mm -hmm. So they protested, and they ended up quitting. Oh. They go off and found their own company called Cointronics. Cointronics never does much. They fold within a, like a year and a half or something. Company's not important. But what is important is they leave, and then they siphon off a couple of other nutting employees, a couple of other sales and promotional people to join them over at Cointronics. So by the virtue of this plane being bought, he effectively got a lot of the key personnel that he has. Exactly. This is part of the reason why, when Nolan Bushnell comes to him, that he is in real need of Nolan Bushnell to be his chief engineer, because he doesn't have much. He brings in a guy named Rod Guyman, who is working for a pen company, to be his new executive vice president, to be the day-to-day operations guy. He brings in a new marketing guy then, a, a little ways after that in 1969, named Dave Ralston, who was apparently... You know, pretty on the ball, that kind of knew what he was doing. 
but he doesn't have design and engineering talent. I mean, he has an engineer, but the engineer isn't worth much. And they're getting to the point where they really can't pimp out computer quiz anymore. They've done the two-player variant. They've done the solid-state variant. They've started exporting it overseas. It's run its course. It's sort of the toy industry. It doesn't have a third Christmas deal where you can only milk this cow so much. Exactly. So they need something new, and they just they don't have it. I mean, they've tried a couple of things. They tried the CSP machine. They tried Astro Computer. They don't take off. They're, no one's really interested. They need something. And they need something at the exact moment that Nolan Bushnell comes knocking on their door in 1971, being like, I've got something. You know, for, for whatever faults he may have had as a businessman, Bill Nutting, it really does seem, liked being involved in something new and exciting. I mean, he did, because he got involved with this quiz machine when that was something new and exciting. So Bill Nutting was a guy that I think could recognize that this video game idea could be another big thing. I mean, he's the guy that took the risk mm-hmm. on this video game when, when there was no one else. I mean, it's not like Nolan shopped it around to 50 million people and they all turned him down or anything. That, that didn't happen. But the fact of the matter is, Nutting is the company that, that said yes to doing a video game. Bushnell becomes the chief engineer at Nutting, but he keeps the rights to computer space separate from, from Nutting. That's a licensing deal. He does not create computer space as a Nutting employee. He creates computer space as a contractor, even though he is also a Nutting employee. Mm. He works on it on nights and weekends and whatnot so that Nutting doesn't gain the rights to the underlying technology. Over the course of 1971, he builds the game that becomes computer space. Computer space is uh, another one of these things that it's hard to really tell what the impact of the game was. Most sources say that it was a failure. I think that goes too far. But you can't really say that it was a massive success either. That, that would also be completely and utterly inaccurate. Would it be fair to say that it was a financial disappointment, but from a technology and what it brought to the table standpoint and what it allowed other people to do, it was a success? Well, I would say almost the other way around, oh, <laughs> if really? that makes sense. Okay. Apparently, it did not take any orders. They brought it to the MOA show in 1971. Did not take a single order on the product. There are some varying stories. Different people have said different things at different times. Some sources say they took a few orders. Some sources say they took a decent number of orders. Some people say they took no orders. I think they took no orders. Rod Guyman, in an interview with, with Ethan, Ethan's been talking to a lot of these people, says that he thought that they probably didn't take any orders at the show. Now, he's remembering things 40 years after the fact, so 45 years after the fact, so he could be wrong. But Nolan Bushnell, in his depositions in the mid-'70s, also said they didn't take any orders at the show, and at that time, it should have been pretty fresh in his memory because that was only like five years later. Not to mention it's a deposition. Exactly. Well, he's trying to be truthful, but sometimes you forget. Mm -hmm. In more recent interviews, he's said that they took orders at the show, but that's, again, that's 40 years after the fact. Five years after the fact, he was saying they took no orders at the show. But they did have a couple of things going for them. Rod Guyman had started a coin route on the side. In addition to running associates, he had founded a, a new corporation to run a coin route. And they put some of the games out on their coin route, and it did really well. I mean, it was earning phenomenally in a lot of those locations. So they had earnings reports that they could show. 
And then they also apparently sent the first few units, the first five units off the line, they sent to five big regional distributors around the country so that they could put it on location, you know, gave it to them for free, I think for free, maybe, so that they could put it on location and see the earnings for themselves. And my understanding is that in a lot of locations, it earned pretty well. But it didn't earn well in all locations because it was a very complex game, Newtonian physics, five-button control scheme. A lot of working-class bars didn't get it. But if you put it in the right place, if you put it at a more upscale location or near a university where you had engineering students— Pretty much targeted at educated people. Mm -hmm. Then you could actually get some pretty good earnings on it because both Rod Guyman and Brad Freger, who you later on became a a producer at Activision, but at this time was a friend of Rod Guyman who he hired just to empty the machines along the coin route, both said that the machines that Nutting put on its coin route earned really good money. You know, that's independent of each other. So that seems to hold water. And certainly they sold 1,500 units. And again, 1,500 units is good in that time period. It's not, hooray, that's the most amazing thing ever, but it's, it's good. They sold somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 units. They produced 1,500 units. They may not have quite sold them all, but they apparently sold between 1,300 and 1,500 units. And that, that's a decent run for a game at that time. So that, that made some money for certain. But a lot of distributors didn't want it. From the looks of things, if you look in the trade publications at the time, what it looks like is a small number of distributors really invested heavily in the game and did very well with it because they kind of paid attention to where to put it and how to push it and got it in front of an audience that was interested in it. But a lot of distributors just didn't want anything to do with it because the technology was so alien. They were afraid of the servicing of it because these are not technologically savvy people. They have like pliers and mallets, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. they go around and they twist this and they pound that and hopefully that works. They're, They're doing mechanical technology, electromechanical technology. They're not doing solid state. And even though solid state machines obviously break down a lot less than electromechanical machines because there are fewer moving parts. They still break down. And it's, it's an alien technology, and it's not that it would have necessarily been hard to learn how to service it, because servicing it is, I presume, mostly a matter of, of switching chips out, <laughs> unsoldering this chip and soldering in that chip, which wouldn't be that hard for some of these people to learn. It's still intimidating when you're pre- presented with a new technology that you've never seen before. Certainly. There was also a lot of concern that the televisions would get stolen. I mean, television pretty expensive piece of hardware back then even the you know 13 or whatever inch black and white televisions that they were putting into these machines that's a pretty nice piece of technology there that you know they're afraid the machines would get smashed up and stolen and of course the control scheme was complex and a lot of operators were like people that just press a couple of buttons for pinball flippers aren't going to want to press all of these complex buttons So it feels like there was a lot of distributor resistance to the machine, and that inhibited sales, but that if a distributor actually invested in the product, they could actually get a decent return on investment. So it was mixed. It It, it really seemed to be that because it's transitional, because you're having something that's coming out from electromechanical age into solid state age, and then you have distributors who have really firm understanding knowledge of electromechanical. And if they aren't 
willing to put in the effort to become knowledgeable and, for lack of a better term, willful ignorance, they're not going to reap the benefits of that. But the ones who are willing to put in the effort to go, oh, this is something new that's coming down the line. I can see how this can be applied. Yeah, I can't throw it everywhere. I can't throw it at this bar down the street. I can't throw it into this dark, dank hole. But if I put it, aim it towards the audience that wants to play this and might understand this, I'm going to reap some money with this. Plus, I get to save on cost operating this thing because I don't have to do with all this stuff with lead mechanical. So by me putting in a little bit more effort, a little more thought into it and not being willfully ignorant about what's going on, I can reap some good reward. But those who don't put in the effort, they're not going to reap the rewards. And thus nutting ultimately suffers some because they don't have the whole swash of distributors taking on that product and putting in the effort. They only have a small fraction of that. I, I really couldn't put it any better myself. I, I think that hits it exactly right. So the result is that video doesn't take off. So 1300 to 1500 in sales is not bad, but it's not world-beating. And the thing is, it's not cloned. I mean, that's your real sense. You know you have a hit in the coin-op industry, a real hit, when everybody and their brother tries to make the exact same game you just did. Mm-hmm. It happened with the audiovisual games. It happened with Pong a year or so later. It happened with the early pinball machines in the 1930s. It did not happen with computer space. There was one copy of computer space made. It was made by a company called Foreplay Manufacturing. It was called Star Trek, even though they had no license to call mm-hmm. their game Star Trek. <laughs> wild, wild west here. That was the only clone of the game that was made. And I don't think the clone did very well either. I mean, when Pong came out a year or so later, there were dozens, literally dozens of clones and variations. So it did all right. It didn't do great. It didn't inaugurate the product category. You needed something simpler. You needed something people could understand more. Pong being so simple and so easy, yet so addictive, that drove the market. And it probably helped that there were some distributors that had done well with computer space to kind of grease the wheels because the first couple of distributors that they went to, like Advanced Automatic, Advanced Automatic had known the nutting product because they had been a nutting distributor and they had heard about the earning reports of Pong and they were very willing to jump on board with Nolan Bushnell because of all of that and talk the game up to other people. Uh, the biggest order that they got early on was from a company called Portal, uh, Automatic Portal, Portale, I don't know how he pronounces his name, but <laughs> Portal Automatic uh, down in Los Angeles. And he had been the most successful or one of the most successful computer space distributors. He had done really well with it. And so when he saw that Nolan Bushnell had a new video product, he put a large order out. And that large order helped Atari get funding to set up their lo- their manufacturing line. The fact that they had some relationships with distributors already from computer space helped grease the wheels. And once you had a few people willing to put in that effort, and once everyone saw how great the game was doing everywhere, because this is a game that would play in working class bars, unlike computer space. Once you had that, then it really took off. So Pong was definitely helped by the computer space experiment coming first. 
I think Pong would have done just fine even without computer space coming first. But its transition in was certainly easier, faster. It probably would have taken longer, maybe an extra six months or so, if we didn't have computer space beforehand. Exactly. It did help grease the wheels a little bit. But of course, Pong was not a nutting product. No. Pong was a Syzygy slash Atari product. And, you know, the reason for that is they had this game, it did okay. Everyone was willing to, to move forward and try something else. What Bill Nutting really thought made sense was to, to do a two-player computer space, because computer space was a one-player game. He did the same thing with the quiz games, right? You had one-player computer quiz, and then you had two-player computer quiz. It's a way of extending the product line. So obviously he was satisfied enough with how the game did, because you don't decide to do a sequel or a, an update or enhancement to a game that bombed for you. That would right. be throwing good money after bad. Mm-hmm. So clearly they were satisfied enough. But by this point, Nolan Bushnell was not impressed with the management at Nutting. And whether this is just because he's a young, brash guy who's itching to go out on his own and thinks he can do better than anybody, or whether it's because the Nutting people were actually somewhat incompetent, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Nutting didn't succeed as a company long term. It went out of business in the (laughs) mid mid to late 1970s. So, right. Obviously, they can't be the best people in the world, or or they would have kept the company going. Bill Nutting, I get the sense, was kind of detached from the day-to-day. Nolan Bushnell describes Bill Nutting largely tinkering with his airplanes <laughs> rather than running the company. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly Ransom White and Richard Ball weren't happy with the whole airplane aspect of things themselves, <laughs> and they left the company. Rod Guyman, I don't know enough about him to discuss his business acumen, but he he leaves. Rod Guyman ends up not staying at the company much longer past Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney leaving. He goes back into the pen business. He had been working for a pen company called Micropoint, and then he had the opportunity, because the company had had some trouble, to go back and buy Micropoint, the company he used to work for. So he left the industry, and I think Micropoint was successful under him. So, I mean, I doubt he was the world's worst businessman. Maybe he didn't understand the coin-op industry as well, because he was in the coin-op industry so briefly. So it's possible that Nolan just got the sense that he didn't know what he was doing in coin-op specifically, but I don't think he was probably a a terrible businessman, because he ran Micropoint for years after that, is my understanding. So, yeah. It makes me wonder if uh, Nolan stayed with Nutting Associates and then continued on creating the two-player computer space, and then maybe even going as far as making Pong for them, if Nutting would have been able to carry on as a viable company as a... Sure, it's quite possible. It's quite possible. And Nolan was willing to continue with Nutting, according to Nolan, but he wanted a stake in the company. He didn't just want to be the chief engineer. If he was going to keep pushing the video technology at Nutting, his technology, he felt that his technology was worth an ownership stake. So he asked for 33% of the company, a third of the company. Hmm. Apparently, Nutting said no. And he did say you can have 5% of the company, make him a very minority owner, but that wasn't going to work for Nolan. <laughs> right. So that at that point, Nolan left, and Ted left, because Ted Dabney had become an employee of Nutting by this time, too. So they left, 
and decided to focus on their Syzygy partnership, which they very quickly incorporated as Atari. So where did that leave Nutting? Well, Nutting carried on with the two-player computer space idea. They actually initially contracted Nolan to make it, to design it. In the end, they used a different design, though. They didn't use Nolan's design. So they do release a two-player computer space, but it has nothing to do with anything that the Atari people did other than being adapted from the original game. They turn down Pong. When Nolan's getting to the point where he's marketing the game, you know, he, he's got the development deal with Bally. I think we've talked about that before. He takes Pong to Bally, and Bally doesn't want it. So he stops by. It just so happens that when he's in town selling the game, trying to sell the game to Bally, is when the MOA show's going on. So Nutting is actually in Chicago at that time because he's at the MOA show. Talking 1972 MOA show now. So he takes at the MOA show and asks Nutting if he'd be willing to, to go in with him to manufacture it. And Nutting turns it down. He didn't like the royalty rate. I, I don't know what it is about Nutting and not wanting to give up control and not wanting to pay royalties. I don't know enough about the man's personality to know where that all's coming from. But clearly he doesn't like any term that Nolan Bushnell ever throws at him. Do you have any idea what that term was? What the royalty rate would no. have been? No. So he turns down Pong. But after Pong starts becoming a sensation on the West Coast, he decides, yeah, I should get into that Pong thing too. And at this point, he becomes a chaser. He becomes a chaser of markets started by other people rather than creating markets himself. I guess in a way, it was always like that because after all, the knowledge computer is not something he initiated. It was something that his company did. And computer space is not something that he initiated. It's something that someone brought to him. And he never really has anyone, I guess, that brings him anything again, because he becomes a chaser at that point. He releases one of the very first Pong clones, which is very uninspiringly named Computer Space Ball. Hmm. He's trying to keep the theme. He had Computer Quiz, and he had Computer Space. Now he's Computer Space Ball, because there's a ball in it. It's a strange name, but he does a Pong clone, and that doesn't work very well. The company does pioneer by creating one of the very first color arcade games, full color, using a full color monitor, a four-player Pong clone called Wimbledon. But that doesn't do well. Then there's a big push into making cocktail table cabinets for high-class lounges and restaurants and hotels. So there's a cocktail table boom that lasts briefly. And after that gets started, Nutting gets involved in that. He releases a Pong variant called Table Tennis. It's a cocktail game. But he gets into the cocktail market too late. Uh, by the time he gets in, that market's already starting to dry up, so that doesn't do very well for him. He never really comes up with anything, or his company never really comes up with anything again. And finally, it ends up getting purchased by a guy named Cy Red, who's a slot machine distributor down in Las Vegas, who has come up with the idea, or people he's in business with have come up with the idea of the video poker machine. He needs some coin-op expertise, I guess, to help get his video poker machine up and running. I mean, he's, he's old-time coin-op. I mean, he's been in the coin-op business forever, but he's a, he's a distributor, operator kind of guy. He's not a manufacturer kind of guy. So he ends up actually buying Nutting Associates and merging it into his company to form a, a company called Sarcoma to make video poker machines. Basically, they found a new Nutting Associates in Nevada, because Cyred's in Nevada. 
And then they merge the old Nutting Associates into Nutting Associates in Nevada, and then that company becomes part of CyRed's operation. And Nutting stays on for a little bit with the Nevada company, then finally exits the industry. And for a while, he ends up, he, he returns to his flying thing. He does more of that. He, he has a really bad crash. I forget exactly when. And that kind of turns him towards religion even more. Uh, and then he becomes kind of a missionary flyer for a while in Africa, delivering supplies and whatnot in airplanes in Africa. Huh. And really focuses on his, on his flying aspect more and never comes back to the coin-op industry or the video game industry ever again. Huh. He's sort of lost in planes and religion. Yeah, he just, he moved on to, to something else. I mean, he did that a couple of times. He started out with a manufacturing company and then decided to follow in the footsteps of retail. Then he got involved with edX, uh, edX. Then he decided from there to get into coin-op and, and then he decided to get out of coin-op and get into something else. So, you know, he was never, he was never that heavily invested in being a coin man for his entire life or a video game man his entire life. But I guess he was always chasing something or another, and for a brief period of time, he was chasing coin-operated games. That makes sense. As much as it can. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on? I think that about covers it. All right. Well, that pretty much sums up Nutting Associates, and from its conception all the way to its demise and purchase and sell-off and merger, where do we go into next time? We have to talk about something else? Yes, we do. We have to feed the beast. That's not good. All you people want to hear us talk for some reason. Well, it feels like we've been focusing an awful lot on the arcade recently, so it's probably time to switch gears again and talk about another aspect of the market. One of our semi-early episodes was an examination of the early years of Electronic Arts, the founding of the company, and some of the struggles that they went through in the first couple of years as they were figuring themselves out. And it might be nice now to continue that story and talk about how EA grew and changed as the 1980s progressed and they started slowly morphing into that corporate behemoth that uh, we know and, uh, according to consumerist polls, really hate today. (laughs) Well, I guess that decides it then. Next time we will go into EA, the teenage years, next time on They Create Worlds. Also, as a side note, if you would like us to cover some sort of subject, feel free to email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.